thank you. Thank you all for sticking around this afternoon and um, coming to hear what I have to say. I actually was asked even at lunch today how I, how I got started, what even made me want to go into grief counseling. There are a lot of different areas that you um, can choose to go into if you're a counselor. I started out counseling in school and um, it became a little more personal to me about 15 or 16 years ago after, uh, um, after our oldest son, a special needs child, passed away. It sort of led me in that direction. I took a class, at, I, took a, I did a workshop at our church in Hendersonville, a weekend when some of you all are familiar with, um, he does a lot of workshops. His uh, last name's McDonald, owns a funeral home, travels around, does a lot of workshops. Bill, thank you and um, attended one of those. They, our church approached me about doing grief counseling and that's kind of how I got started. Asked me if I would facilitate a group. Um, did that until we got a full-time counselor on staff and then was looking for a Wednesday night class to take and didn't look like anything exciting. So I took Tom, the class that Thomas volunteered to teach at our class for um, a few months. Got interested in prison ministry. Carol finds out that I've done grief counseling, they need one at TPW, and that's how that all came about. So it was kind of like providential, it was just sort of all meant to be. But I have something I read to my, to my classes when I do these classes, and I do them more in a class style, I'll talk about that in a minute and I'll finish up what I've got up here. Um, but I'm going to read you this, it's very short, and this is what I usually start my grief groups with, and I'll just read it and we'll kind of go from there. There's an old Chinese tale about the woman whose only son died. In her grief, she went to the holy man and she said, what kind of prayers or magical incantations do you have that could possibly bring my son back to life? Instead of sending her away or reasoning with her, he said to her, you fetch me a mustard seed from a home that has never known any sorrow. We'll use that to drive the sorrow out of your life. The woman set off at once in search of that magical mustard seed. She came first to a splendid mansion, knocked at the door. She said, I'm looking for a home that's never known any sorrow. Is this such a place? She said, it's very important to me that I find this place. And they looked at her and said, you know what? You've come to the wrong place. They began to describe all the tragic things that had recently befallen them. The woman said to herself, hmm, who's better able to help these poor unfortunate people than I who've had a misfortune of my own? So she stayed on to comfort them. Then she went on in search for a home that had never known sorrow. But wherever she turned, hovels, palaces, she found one tale after another of sadness and misfortune. Ultimately, she became so involved in ministering to other people's grief that she forgot about her quest for the magical mustard seed, never realizing that it had in fact driven the sorrow out of her own life. And I think that's it. that pretty well describes where I was. I hadn't, it had not even been a year I started grief counseling. And that's what I have found over the years. I've been at TPW now, this is starting my fourth year. And I have found that the more I help other people with their grief, the smaller my grief seems to be. It never goes away, but it, it does seem to lessen your thoughts of your own grief when you're working and trying to help somebody else. Um, grief is universal. It's a universal experience. If there's anybody in here that has never known a loss, 
I'd like to I'd like to talk to you after uh, I'd like to talk to you after we're finished today because you are really a special person. However, grief is not just associated with death. It's not the only time we grieve, is it? You ever moved? Let me tell you, my dad was a preacher. He liked to move. Little churches, you know, all over the South. I went to five high schools in four years. So you know what? There's a, there was some grief associated with that. I didn't realize until after I became a counselor that those some of the emotions that I felt as a teenager were very much the same as the grief, going through a lot of the same grief steps that, I, that I'm going to talk about today. Um, divorce. People get divorced. They're, you know, that's a, that's a grief. Lose your job. You know, people, um, I mean, my hairdresser could move. My, I had a hairdresser move one time. I promise I grieved for two weeks over that. I'm telling you, I went through, you know, shock, denial, crying, anger, the whole thing. I went through every one of them. Depression. I got over it eventually, but I mean, I do know that, that there are a lot of things. Well, incarcerated, no different. You know, what I found, and I can only speak from the women's prison because that's where I am, so I'm talking about a group of women. And what I found is these women truly have broken hearts. They, they truly have broken hearts. Um, and there are a lot of reasons why I do think if you've, if you have time. You don't, you don't really have to be a counselor. You don't have to have a counseling degree to do this. If you've got compassion, a listening ear, and a little kindness in your heart, read some books, look at some, you know, get a method. There is a really big need for helping the incarcerated deal with um, loss and grief. I'm going to start today with, and as a counselor, you know, I don't normally. Um, my first little story here, I'm, I'm going to tell you about one of my students, and it's okay. This was a homework assignment that they said I could keep and use, so I'm not breaking a confidentiality. This is Tina. Tina was in the second class that I ever taught at TPW, and these classes were so much different than the classes that I did at Hendersonville Church of Christ. When I was at church, I had a lot of widows widowers, um, you know, people who had lost an aunt, somebody close to them. Not that their grief wasn't real, but it was more of a typical type of grief counseling group. When I went to TPW and the first person said, I murdered my husband and I miss him, I, for once I was speechless. It was the first time I was speechless. There are days when I go home and I feel like I have an elephant on my chest. I mean, their stories are so sad and so unbelievable. And sometimes I feel almost inadequate. I always tell them the first day if I had a magic wand, I'd wave it and I'd take away all your sorrow and everybody would live happily ever after, but that's not the real world. And I don't have that magic wand. So if I can just ease it a little bit, that's, that's what I'm aiming for. Well, the second class I had, this was Tina, and I'm going to read you what Tina wrote to me. This was in response to a journal topic they had, so she's kind of got it numbered, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to read you her story. On April the 2nd, 2011, my son was murdered. He was eight years old. His name was Dylan. His daddy's mom, his grandmother, 
shot him, and then shot herself. That took half my life away when that happened. My son was a very important part of my life, and when he was taken from me, I didn't know what to do. Yes, it would have been different if I had lost anyone else, but one of my kids, no, because my babies are my world, and to have one taken, I wouldn't put that on anyone. I felt so empty inside, and still do a little, and no matter how it was done, I would have felt the same, because it was my kid. Well, I was locked up in the county jail when it happened, and about 2.30 a.m., the chaplain, two detectives, came and got me, and they said, your son's been killed. I lost it. I couldn't talk. I just wanted to die. That's how bad it hurt. After a couple of days, I kept asking myself if it was really true, or is this just a dream? I didn't want to believe it, and just a few months ago, I realized that it was real, and that my baby boy was gone, and he wasn't never coming back. When I got out of jail, I got high to stop the hurt. I didn't know any other way to cope, and I still really don't. I just take it one day at a time. So why do you think the incarcerated need, um, need to be taught some grieving skills? Why do you think they need to have some grief counseling? Statistics show, and I just read this recently, that about 50% of incarcerated men and women will lose a loved one to death while they are incarcerated. Most of these are not going to be able to grieve in a manner that's normal or healthy. It leads to complicated or um, unresolved grief. Here are just some observations that I've seen in trying to help some of the ladies that I've had grieving in prison. First of all, they don't have any social supports. They don't, they don't get the flowers delivered to their door after their loved one dies. Probably don't get cards. They don't get those casseroles delivered to their door that says, here's a little comfort food to comfort you. People don't come by and see them week after week afterwards. They don't have that social support. Um, I think that's one of the hardest things that, that, that I've seen that, they, that they're lacking there. Many of them come from a background of abuse. When you've been physically abused, mentally abused, emotionally abused, you don't trust a whole lot of people. So even if there are people in, this, in the system, and I know there are, that they can go talk to, there are chaplains, there are volunteer chaplains, there are mental health people, they don't trust them. They don't trust them to bear their soul to because there's a, there's a fine line between um, showing that emotion and getting what they getting the, back the response that, that they want right then it, or that they need. It's that authority figure. Many of them are in poor health. Um, I've seen a lot of them mentally and physically that are just not in good health and, the, and their health issues hinder normal grieving. Um, no place to grieve. That's the best thing I've got in my little class, and I want to tell you about that in a little bit, is a place for them to grieve. Um, somebody said to me just recently that they were never alone, but they were very lonely while they were in prison. Their hearts are breaking. They need a place to be by themselves to grieve, and there's not a place. There's not a place to do that. If they shed tears, well, 
two things can happen. You shed tears and uh, the other ladies see it. You know what's going to happen. You're vulnerable. You're, leading yourself, you're, you're letting yourself open for bullying or making fun of or somebody gossiping about you to somebody else. If you break down screaming and sobbing, like a lot of, it's a normal grief reaction, they're going to think you're suicidal and lock you up by yourself for a few days. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's a hard place. There's just really no place for them to grieve. Um, another thing, I just think they don't know how. I don't think they know how to grieve, partly because a lot of the ladies that I've had are in there because of alcohol or drug abuse. So in the past, when they've, when they've been confronted with sorrow, pain, what do you think they do? Go to a counselor or their preacher? What do they do? They self-medicate, exactly. They get high, they get drunk, and you know, when it wears off, it's the, they're back on the bottom, and it's a cycle. So they truly just don't know where to go and don't know what to do. The other thing, I think this is really sad, there's no closure. Um, I do, not, in addition to the classes, I do one-on-one -on -one counseling. If I'm, I go on Wednesdays, I stay about three hours, and um, if there's been a death, a close death that somebody, Carol will send me somebody occasionally, the other chaplain will say, hey, could you see somebody while you're here? And just about two weeks ago, I had a girl who, um, whose brother died, who was murdered, and she said, and it really wasn't that far away, it was a county over, but she said, I'm not even gonna get to go because there aren't enough people here. There are not enough guards, you know. I mean, you know the story, they can't go. If they go, they stay 15 minutes. Tina, the girl I told you about, this happened in East Tennessee. She had lost custody of the child, Dylan, to the grandmother. The grandmother was raising him. She and the dad were in jail on drug charges. The grandmother couldn't take it anymore, I, I suppose. They had no idea. The grandmother dresses Dylan in his pajamas, and she tells me all this, takes him to a gas station, asks to use the restroom, locks the door, shoots the little boy and then herself. Tina was allowed to go to the visitation with a guard. That is unfathomable. If you, I mean, those, if you're a parent, it's probably just beyond anything that you could ever imagine what she's carrying around. Sad thing, I did one-on-one -on -one counseling with her after the class ended for a few weeks. I went in with her, I went in to call her up one day. You know what I, you know the answer I got? Oh, they moved her to Bledsoe County. So that was the end of that. Just pray for her now, that's about all I can do. What I bring to my groups, first of all, a listening ear. I mean, granted, a counseling degree is good, but I didn't learn in school nearly enough about the heart, and I've learned a whole lot more um, on my own and talking to people about grief and helping them work through it than I did in school. So a listening ear is the most important thing. You don't have to have a counseling degree to have a listening ear. Compassion and caring. They need to know that what they're feeling is normal, that they're not crazy, they're not losing their mind. It is normal. A chance for their stories to be shared. 
they can't share these stories in their cell. If they're lucky enough to have a trusting friend, they might be able to talk to someone, and that has been very few and far between that anyone has found someone. The good thing about having a class is that they have bonded with other ladies in the class, and then they have found a buddy afterward that they could trust. Um, the next thing I do is I, what, how I do my classes, and this is what they ask me to do there. They get a certificate for this, and you know, the more classes they get, then they take those when they get ready to get out those certificates. So, usually they try to identify people that have a need for this class, for, that they've had a loss, you know, like a major loss. But we don't just, like, screen them. You know, if somebody wants to sign up for it, it usually works itself out. I try not to take over about 10 people. I do an eight-week class. There have been classes that were a little needier, and I've stretched them to 12 weeks if I needed to. Um, I, I'll tell you, there are some people who walk in the first day and sit down and get the Kleenex box, and it is such a relief to them to be able to cry and have a place to cry that they start crying five minutes before we get into it. There are other women who I'm just going to tell you, they're bitter and they might even got, they kind of got a little mean streak and they cross their arms and they glare at me like, I'm only in here to get my certificate. But you know what happens after about three weeks? They're usually the ones crying and asking me if I can stretch it out a couple, three more weeks. I have got, um, and I started doing this, I only got the first five before Thomas got ready here. Sorry, I didn't do the PowerPoint thing. but. I, I have a model, and before you leave today, if you are interested in this, I have run off just the books that I use. They're my own personal books that I've ordered. They're my favorites, and I ran a copy of like all of those. If you want to look them up, you can get them off of Amazon, and there's some reproducibles in there, and um, they're just some things that I've picked and you know that I've used over the, the last few years. I start my first day identifying, letting everybody after I kind of do what I call my housekeeping rules. Number one thing is confidentiality. I'll tell you, I'm a stickler about that, especially in the prison system. If I ever hear, and they tell, if I ever hear that one person talked about something else that was shared in that class, they're not allowed to come back in my group. They're automatically asked to leave. It's only happened to me one time. A girl talked in the cafeteria, the other girls had already told, and she knew she was gonna get ousted. So she walked into class that day and she goes, I've changed my mind about taking this class. So she was gone on her own, but she knew she was going to be ousted because she shared things that, mm -mm, absolutely. So I'm a real stickler for that. And you know what? They really appreciate the fact that they have somebody they can trust and that they know that um, they can be honest with you. The only, time I, the only time that I will tell, obviously, is if it's, there's a threat to their own life or if they're breaking, I mean, if it's a rule that I would lose my badge over, you know, if, they're, if they tell me something that in that way that they're not supposed to tell me. But, so I start with those kind of housekeeping rules, and then what I do is I, I, the lady that had done this class before me did two hours. I think that's too long. I think when you get that down for two hours and you're just, it just, people, it's just too much. It's just a lot of, because they're a lot, really emotional, and I just think two hours is too long. So, I spend the first part dealing with um, a concept, uh, one of the stages of grief. And I, 
I sort of, and I'm not a good, that's why I didn't draw it out. I kind of crudely draw it out for them. And I like, I, I try to give them a visual and I call it my falling in the well. And this is sort of what happens. And this is pretty much right here falling in the well and I didn't get them all the rest of the way up there and I'll tell you those in a few minutes. But when you lose something or someone passes away, your very first reaction, your body takes over, that adrenaline kicks in, you know you're in the shock stage and the denial stage. These women feel that same, many of them have felt the same way the day those gates clicked behind them. The day that it clicked and they knew that it was locked and they couldn't get out. I've had so many people describe that being like a death. You know, it, that's, um, it, it's like you're in shock and it, this can't be real. I can turn around and get back out of here. So their loss of freedom, every one of them, pretty much goes through grief with just a loss of freedom. You know how many women have lost their children to state custody, grandparents, or what? Do you know how I many? Lots of them. Do you know how many tears have been shed over the fact that they don't know where their children are? Or maybe their crime was such that they're never going to see their children again? That's a, I mean, that's a big loss. And you know, there's still mamas you know, they're still mothers and they still wonder and they still think about those children. And that's a, um, it might not be a death, but it might as well be a death for them. It might as well. Yeah, because you know, me being at CCW, uh, a lot of women, when you get clean and you're in your right mind, you worry about your children. When you're out there on the street, you're driving and that's it and then when they're clean and they want they want they think if I could get out now what a better mother I would be so there's that sense of loss and they really struggle and they almost go through every one of these and you know I, I have always started every group I've done this is pretty much and you'll read if you if you know a lot about grief counseling you've ever done anything you this is always pretty much you know the first stage of all of it but you know what I've had to do and I've probably done this maybe on three occasions Misty her name was Misty and it was this was about the fourth class I ever did and this was a big class and there were a lot of needs in that class. We had had just a lot of, there had been a lot of people that had a lady's mother died and just, oh, I mean, it was just, they, and it, the whole class was sobbing. It came to Misty, the last person to tell me what she wanted from the class. And they usually share if they want to, you know, like I lost my mother, I can't get over this, I've lost my children. Usually they'll share what they want help with in that class. Misty was the last person, we were on a table and she was on my right. And she's 30-ish, just a pretty face, big old tears. And she said, and I just gave her her time. I said, Misty, what do you want from this class? And she said, I don't need to be in here. And I said, okay, why do you think that? And she said, I don't have a right to grieve. No one had ever said that to me before. And that, it shocked me. It's another one, second time I speechless probably in my life. And I said, and so I asked her why, why did she think that? And she said, I said, who is it that you're grieving for? Or what is it you're grieving for? And she said, my father. And I said, um, did he pass away? And she said, yes. And I took his life. And she said, 
you can't grieve somebody's life that you took. Well, it was already my time was up, and at 10.30 they go for count, so they had to leave. So I said, you know what, Misty? You come back next week. You have a right to grieve. Everyone has a right to grieve, and we're going to talk about this. So I just, I, I totally didn't do that. The whole, that whole week, I worked all week long on forgiveness, forgiving yourself. Christ can forgive you, then you know you can forgive yourself enough to grieve. And he, it's a sad story. He was abusive physically. He was very abusive to the mother. So much so that the mother had become, had pretty much gone in the background in the family. Misty had become her mother's protector and had gotten in the middle between her and her dad, you know, pretty much. And one day she snapped when he went off on the mother. She killed him. Made that decision in the moment. Now, she didn't miss the lifestyle they had, but one day I said, what do you miss about your dad? And she said, they always call me Miss Pam. She goes, you know what, Miss Pam? And she was just crying her eyes out. She said, I miss Christmas with family. I miss it when we had good times. She said, he wasn't mean all the time, but when he was mean, he was mean. So she was grieving. She was grieving the family that was gone. And you know, it just, that was the day I had a big old elephant on my chest when I left and a lump in my throat that was, a, you know, I mean, I, I was so sad for her. And it dawned on me what they lose, you know, what they, I mean, yeah, she was totally grieving um, what they used to have. And I've got another, um, and I'll just read it now, it's fine. I don't care if I'm in order. I didn't really have an order. This was Sandra. I'm going to read you what Sandra wrote me. Now, Sandra, it, it's sort of the same story, and she said I could share this with you all. Now, Sandra was one of those that came in there, and she had this mean look on her face. So we went around the room the first day, and she said, I just need me a certificate out of this class. She said, I said, well, is there anything in particular? Oh, I can't think of anything. You know, I mean, yeah, she said, I ain't with my kids right now, and that's pretty sad. But, you know, it is what it is. Okay, we just went on. Well, let me read you the letter that, that she, let me read you what she wrote to me. Now, let me tell you, she had an abusive, this abusive man in her life. She, too, took his life, which she tells me later. She didn't tell me this for a long, and I, I knew nothing of this. Here's a letter that she wrote to me, or it was a, in response to a journal article, but it was to me. The lowest point in my life, now being in prison, I've lost my children because of a man who abused me and my daughter. My lowest point was getting sentenced for first-degree murder. Miss Pam, do you think God will get me out of here? I stand on his word that that man said to me that it's not over. Uh, right before she shot him. Killed him. She said, can you pray for me? I am so scared. I try to hide my fear. I try to stay strong, but in privacy, I break down. I know you're probably at home right now. And please, after reading this, would you pray for me and my three children, Ashley, Jasmine, Diamond? She said, put it in your church prayer for us. I need strength and I need forgiveness. I need God's mercy, his love, his favor. Please pray for me. I love you, Miss Pam. Now, this girl, I thought, 
was like a brick wall. I, I mean, I, let me just tell you, that was four elephants on my chest that day. I mean, honestly, I read this at night, and she was right. I took this stuff home, the journal articles. I read it. I was bawling and praying for her. My husband thought I probably lost my mind, and I just said, I, said, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> That's, that day I thought, That's it. I can't do this anymore. It's just too much for me. But then, you know what? It was one of those things. When I thought back to my darkest days, and there were days after my son passed away that I probably felt the same way. I wish I could just call somebody up right now and say, I just need you to pray for me. You know, I need prayers. I need, I'm hurting. And that's exactly what she was saying. So she stayed at the end of the class. She said, can we go two more? Can we go stretch this two more weeks? I just, I'm not ready for it to be over. I did. Two more weeks, whole group. And by the end of the time, Sandra walked out of there and she gave me a hug and a smile. And she said, thank you for everything you've done. She said, I can do this. So, do you think the incarcerated need um, some grief counseling? I do. Now, that's what I do, forgiveness. How am I on time? I'm okay, I'm good. I call it my well. I told you I'm not, I'm not an artist, so I didn't draw it up here. But I, call it, I liken it to falling in the well. You fall in the well when something happens. When you have a loss, you fall into that well. First of all, I can't believe I'm falling in a well. It can't be happening to me. I'm falling, I'm going all the way. I, there's nothing for me to reach on to. I can't pull myself out right now. This is happening. Those are the first things you do. You plan those funerals. You're numb when you do it. You pick out that casket. You go, you look at a tombstone. It's real but you're having this out-of-body experience for just a little bit. It's just a very strange feeling. If you've been there, I'm not telling you anything. If you haven't been there, I'll be praying for you because it is an out-of-body experience, let me just tell you. And that's the same thing. They, it, whether they've lost their children, they've lost their husbands because they're in there, they've gotten divorced, whatever they've lost, we start here, falling in the well. The second week, I usually do anger and fear. Now, I don't do anger management. I'm not an anger management counselor. That's not what I do. But let me tell you, when something happens and you don't really know why, you're mad. You are really mad about it. And you know what? There are people that come in there and they are so mad. They're, they can't it's almost like they're not grieving and you think they don't care because all you see is mad. But that anger's coming from hurt, not just from meanness, it's coming from hurt. And then you're afraid. And I think that, that fear, you know, once they get in prison and then it is, a, it, they're, they're afraid. You know, what am I gonna do? If it, they've lost somebody, what am I gonna do without this person in my life? What am I going to do? Who's going to take care of my children now that I'm in prison? Or because of my crime, I had a teacher, actually a teacher who lived very close to in, over in Mississippi, not far from here, who committed a crime against a student. She's never going to teach again. She'd spent her lifetime teaching, going and getting more education. She made a bad, she made a bad decision, a bad choice, and because of that, her whole career, her whole future. It, 
is gone. And she said to me, she said, when I realized what I had done and thought about, you know, when it finally just, she said, it hit me. She said, the fear, what am I going to do? I've lost everything I've worked for, was so overwhelming. She said it was just, it, it, it pushed her farther down in the well. Um, what I try to do with each of these is what I, in my class period, I, I give symptoms of them and I give sort of like what to look for in that. And then the second, um, the other thing I do is I give suggestions to them for working through it, identifying it, and then something to help you work through it. Now, here's the thing. You're normal if you go through all these. It's perfectly normal. Not everybody will do them all the same way. Some people will skip them. You know, you might skip a step. And then there will be people that will stay in one for a long time. The scary thing is, and when you really need professional help, is when you're there for an extended length of time and you can't get out of it. And so that. Absolutely. When we get. Mm hmm. Absolutely. That's where people get stuck. And that's the one where I think your life can totally change the most. Mm -hmm. Panic and guilt. Um, and guilt sometimes I, I kind of put back with the forgiveness when we talk about guilt. It depends on if, you, if you're carrying around a lot of guilt. Let's just say, for instance, um, you have, you, you, you knew your mother was sick. You knew she hadn't been feeling well, but you just kept putting off, taking her to the doctor, or you let her talk you out of it, and then something happens to her. It's that kind of guilt. Um, that's the sort of, or you know, you knew that something, or I had a girl just in my last class say, you know what, I had 10 pills to sell. I, I'd been in prison before. I knew the consequences of it. I knew I shouldn't sell those 10 pills, but you know what, I sold them to an undercover agent, no less. So, she got a year per pill, um, you know, and so the guilt, you know, then she's estranged from her father, and so, you know, that kind of guilt stuff. Um, loneliness and depression, and Naomi's right, when you get there, boy, it's a, it is just really hard, and especially for these ladies, because they don't have a support system, they don't have uh, they don't always, because a lot of them, people, it's hard to identify when you're in prison who's the most depressed. It does seem depressing. You'll notice some people have, yes. you know, act out more or they have worse, um, maybe worse symptoms. <laughs> but those are harder to identify, I think. It's hard for me sometimes to identify in a group of 10 ladies just really which ones. Because just because they're crying doesn't mean they're depressed, you know. And there's a lot of other um, kind of symptoms to go along with that. But, this, when you're here, to me, you're at the bottom of the well. You have hit the bottom. Now, you can stay there for a long time. You can work it out. You know, I, I, I tell them everything from keep a journal. A lot of them are writers. You know, they love journals. If you work in prisons, you know they love to write stuff, so they do journals. Um, if you've got a friend, you can find somebody you can trust. It's a gym. Now, granted, they might not be there. That's the bad thing. They're afraid to get too close to somebody. They're afraid they'll, you know, the next day they'll be gone. But um, that's, you know, that's, um, you're pretty much at the bottom of the well. Once, to me, the ticket to it is realizing it. A lot of them are depressed 
and aren't aware of it. If I give them some ideas that make them go, oh yeah, you know what, that must be why I've been feeling, I'm depressed. Once they realize it and they want to, they can, they can help, you know, they can do things to help themselves work out of it. Relationships, that's a big one. And I spend, sometimes I spend two weeks on that one. Your relationship changes when you lose somebody. Your relationship with God changes and your relationship with your family. I had this girl that they, she didn't take a class, but they asked me to see because her grandfather died. She had been raised by grandparents. Um, the grandmother had passed away before she went to prison and had been really sick. And her name was Alicia. Alicia stayed and took care of her, did, you know, just really, um, took care of all her grandmother's needs, was there to the very end, uh, couldn't handle the grief, went back to her drug life, got caught, back to prison, left the grandfather home, the grandfather was happy. She gets the call one day to the chapel and says, your grandfather they found dead in the bed this morning. She was a bat and was the sweetest girl ever. She was such a basket case that the, they asked me to see her that week when I was there. They said, could you see her? They called her to the chapel. It scared her, that call to the chapel. When she got down there, she was shaking and crying. Like, I mean, she was a basket case. I mean, it was like all I could do to calm her down. I'm here to help you. I'm not going to give you any bad news. Um, she, um, she, her relationships, it was just, you know, her relationship with God was suffering. She said, the first thing she said to me was, I've been, she goes, I know I should pray, but right now I am so mad at God. She looked at me and she said, I will never pray to God again. And so I just kind of told her, we pray together. I'll pray today. I'll do the praying. So I got her by the hand and we said a prayer. She cried so hard. I doubt she heard a word I said. And then I said, and you know what? I want you to promise me I'm going to see you next week and you're going to pray every day. And every day you're going to tell God you're mad at him because you know what? It's God. He, he, he knows you're mad. Just tell him you're mad. Help me deal with this. The next week she came in. She was crying hysterically again. It was her place to cry. She said, I just want you to know I've been praying every day and I feel better. <laughs> so, okay. You know, and, and she said, but I did want you to know that I've been saying some really awful things to God. Like, why did you do this to me? And, you know, I didn't deserve this. And, or maybe I did deserve this. But you know what I got from it? She's been praying to God every single day. So um, she went to a halfway house. Then I'm back home and I'm hoping that, that she got her life Five minutes. I hope she got her life put back together. Okay. Six week, I usually, um, if I break those up, family relationships. I had a girl last time. Her mama died after she got there. Her sisters didn't talk to her anymore because she's in prison. They had to plan the funeral themselves. You know what? Basically, I said to her one day, I said, um, Stephanie, do you ever, have you ever considered that they're grieving too? and that the reason y'all aren't speaking, they're home grieving, they're grieving because they're doing it by themselves, and you're grieving because you think that they don't care about you, but everybody's grieving. She finally made a phone call, they reconciled, when she realized, hey, we're all grieving, but they were mad because no one realized that the other one, that you know, because one's here, one's there, that they were grieving. 
and I won't write these up there, but if you're writing them down. Um, the seventh thing I do is getting out of the well. And I always tell them, hey, somebody's just throwing you a rope. If you look up and you look really hard, you're gonna see a little bit of daylight coming your way. You just gotta grab the rope. So you're gonna have to work and grab that rope. And you're gonna have a little hope. You need to start working on getting out of the well. And I give them, wherever they're stuck, wherever these, whatever got them in the well, we'll work on adjusting. These are all feelings. Now we're gonna have some action. This is stuff I felt, now we're gonna have some action. That action's gonna get me out of the well. So, you grab hold of the rope, you look at the light, you stay focused on that light, and then you concentrate on what's gonna get you out. And the last thing, and this is to me, one of the most important things, is helping others. Because this is not pointless, because it does help them. But in order for it to pay itself forward, they need to learn this is a community that we're living in here in this prison, and the more I help others, the better this place is gonna be. One girl said to me last week, when we got, a couple weeks ago, we were doing anger and outbursts, she said, she looked at the other girl across the table from her, they're all in the same little cell block thing there, and she said, oh, that must be why, called her name, has been so angry lately. You know, her daddy just died, and I bet she, that's why she's been just all of a sudden, just her personality has changed. So if they can help others. Another thing is if they learn to deal with some of this, the chances of them going back home when they are out and when something bad happens, of them going back to an addictive lifestyle or covering it up with drugs and alcohol, maybe if they have the skills and they know these, they can use that to, they, they can think back on that and, and work through some of that instead of self-medicating, Naomi said. It's important. Hey, do it. I mean, I, if you want, um, those papers are right, actually, I think they're right here. If you want some, just the resources I use, I mean, they're not, they're just the ones that I personally use. Um, if you ever want to, um, if you're thinking about doing a grief group, I'd love to talk to you sometime, you know, help you, Carol help me get set up in the prison, and I'm, it's the most rewarding thing that I've ever done, I'll tell you, and it does take your mind off your own life and really give you a refocus. Thanks for stopping by.